Let's go together now to 2 Corinthians 13. 2 Corinthians 13, and let's talk together about church. Nobody tells you when you become a parent that you're going to have to become a part-time detective as well. Parents, have you ever had that situation where your day is going along fine, and all of a sudden some dispute among your children comes up, and now you have to figure out who broke it or who started it? Your nice day has now changed, and you take on the role of Judge Judy, and you don't want that. It's not the most fun part of parenting, but it is absolutely necessary. You do need to teach and correct and discipline in your family. It's not all ball games and picnics and vacations, but the stakes get higher when your children get older. I mean, when your children are little and they get into something, sometimes it's actually quite comical, and you have to turn your head to laugh so that you can have a straight face for discipline. But when your children get older, and if perhaps you had a child that was bent on rebellion, and now the the stakes are so high, it can bring chaos and heartbreak into the family. I mean, imagine it. A teenager who's bent on lying and deceiving and scheming to get his or her way. Once the sin is found out, they might get quite defiant. They're going to do what they want to do. And a parent now is faced with some choices they didn't want to have to have. Now they're having to choose. Do we cower before this belligerent teenager Or do we stand up to the teenager? Do we show tough love or will we be permissive? Maybe even enabling the teenager to continue in the path of destruction that they're on. Well, do you know churches have to face the same types of issues at times? I mean, every church wants to focus on joyful worship and warm fellowship and spiritual growth and kingdom impact in the world. That's what a church wants to focus on. But sometimes error and sin These things have to be addressed in a church. And Paul's facing that very situation with a church he dearly loves there in Corinth. And so for these months, we've walked through 2 Corinthians and we've seen Paul interact with his church, trying to bring back health where there's dysfunction. And so we dive back into that same context now in chapter 13, the first four verses. This is the third time I'm coming to you. Every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I have previously said when present the second time, and though now absent, I say in advance to those who have sinned in the past and to all the rest as well, that if I come again, I will not spare anyone. Since you're seeking for proof of the Christ who speaks in me and who is not weak towards you, but mighty in you, for indeed he was crucified because of weakness, yet he lives because of the power of God. For we also are weak in him, Yet we will live with him because of the power of God directed toward you. Here Paul tells them, I'm coming. This will be my third time with you. Now that first time Paul went to Corinth is when he planted the church. He brought the good news of Jesus to the church, to the people of Corinth and formed a church. Told them the gospel, how to come out of sin and put their faith in Jesus Christ to be born again. Paul had made a second trip to Corinth. That was one that he thought of as a painful, sorrowful visit. And that visit didn't go well as he tried to call them out of their sin and error. He then followed up with a painful letter that he talked about earlier in 2 Corinthians where he wrote them and and finally they started to respond well to that. And so now he has written this third letter, which we have as 2 Corinthians in the Bible. And it was all to set up his coming visit to them to call for the completion of that offering for the poor in Jerusalem. Perhaps you remember that. This letter also was to call out the false teachers, the false apostles, but also to call for repentance in Corinth for some of their besetting sins, particularly their ungodly division and their sexual immorality. 
If you were with us last time, you might remember this passage, 2 Corinthians 12, verses 20 through 21, to see the types of sin Paul was addressing there. Paul wrote this, For I am afraid that perhaps when I come, I might find you not to be what I wish, and may be found by you not to be what you wish, that perhaps there will be strife, jealousy, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances. I'm afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you, and I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past, and catch this, and not repented of the impurity, immorality, and sensuality which they have practiced. So Paul said, these are the things that concern me. I'm coming there, but I want to address those in advance. Though I am personally weak, I'm strong in Christ, and when it comes to dealing with sin in the church, I'm going to come in the resurrection power of Jesus when I come there to address this. Notice he says here in verse 2 of chapter 13, I'm not going to spare anyone. We're going to deal with this sin when I get there. So by way of application, as we apply this to ourselves, let's consider two questions today. The first question is this, why must a church address sin? Why must a church address sin? And then we'll take on another question in a moment. Now, there are two answers to this first question, why a church must address sin. Is, is this, first of all, because of what a church is, but then secondly, because of what sin does. So let's take on this first answer. Why must a church address sin? Because of what a church is. Now, it's the wrong vision of a church to think that a church is just a place that you go to from time to time, but it really has no bearing on how you live your life. The idea of a church being just a worship service that you attend from time to time, but then you live any way you please, that's not church. That's more like a concert. It's not a biblical understanding of church. Some people might have this idea of a church. Church is a place I went once to be married, and in the future it's a place where I'll go just before I am buried. That's not a biblical understanding of church. Biblically, a church is much more important and profound than that. Biblically, a church is a family, and it's God's family. What could be more important than that? God being our father and those who've trusted in Jesus are his children and we are brothers and sisters to each other. Not only that, biblically, the church is described as a body. In fact, Paul taught the Corinthians this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, that we all have value in the church. We're all important. We all are necessary and we matter to each other in the church. In fact, when there's pain in one part of the body, it impacts others. In fact, we know this with our actual physical bodies, don't we? You, you can have infection in just one part of your body, but your whole body feels it. You might get a fever in your body because of an infection in just one part. Everything suffers. We're all connected. And likewise, in the body of Christ, we're connected. We love each other. We rally to help each other and to bring healing. So when we think about what a church is and why sin is even important, let's consider maybe this simple definition of a church. A church is a group of baptized believers in Jesus Christ who have committed themselves to him and to each other for the purpose of worship, sanctification, and service in fulfilling the Great Commission until Jesus returns. That Greek word for church is ekklesia, which literally means called out, a called out assembly, and that's us. We've been called out from the world to be God's precious people. In fact, one other way we're described in the Bible as a church, as the bride of Christ. Maybe you remember back in chapter 11, verse 2, how Paul wrote to the Corinthians. He said, for I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. 
So think about this. This is how the church is in the mind of God. And so a church is profoundly special. A church is profoundly significant. I can't think of another entity on the planet more precious, more important than a church. Even you and I might say, well, my family is of paramount importance. We say, absolutely, our, our families are critical. But think about it. As a, as a Christian family, we are compelled by the Bible to lead our families into a healthy church. It's one of the responsibilities. We're not treating our family well if we're not connecting them to a church. And so what we see in the Bible is church is something far more than a place that you just attend. It's a place where we grow in discipleship. We're growing in faith and we're growing in Christ's likeness. So with that being said about the importance of church, what a church is. So if a local church is the family of God, where does willful sin fit into the family of God? If a church is the body of Christ with Christ being the head of the body, then where does willful sin fit into the life of a church? If the church is indeed the body of Christ, where does willful ongoing sin without repentance, where does that fit into a church? And so we must deal with sin because what a church is. But not only that, we must deal with sin because of what sin does. What does sin do? Well, sin hurts people always. We've said it before that sin is poison. When God tells us to avoid sin, he's not trying to keep good things from us. He's trying to keep something devastating from us, and so we want to avoid sin. It is a poison. Here's the typical progression of what sin is and does. Sin, first of all, deceives, then it divides, and then it destroys. That's what sin does, and that's why this has no place in a church. That's why a church must address it. First of all, sin does deceive. So every temptation, have you noticed, is a deception. But when you and I act on the temptation, we're now deceiving ourselves as well. We might say things like this when we choose to sin. Well, this will work out fine. It's not true. This really isn't that bad, we might say to ourselves. It's not true. We're deceiving ourselves. This will only impact me. Not true. Or how about this one? God understands that I really need to do this thing he says not to do. It's not true. It's a self-deception. That's what a rationalization really is. So when you stay in sin, you actually go further into deception. And so you actually begin to expect God, to expect his word, to expect the church to actually change to come along and agree with your sin. So for example, have you noticed this? That immorality, that sin in particular, often leads to idolatry. Immorality often leads to idolatry. I've seen this over and over again. So, so what people do, the, these temptations are st so strong when a person refuses to submit those to Christ, but to go with it, something has to give, and it's God who has to give in their hearts. So people make these demands of God. God, you must change the Bible for me. God, you need to change the way the church has viewed this for 2,000 years. You have to change this for me. And of course, that's never going to happen. And so we go to this move. Well, then, God, you have to change. You, you will be different. And so sometimes a person goes from their immorality and idolatry, and they'll say things like this. My God doesn't have a problem with this. My God wouldn't judge people for this. And do you hear the idolatry there? You've made up your God. In distinction from the God who is, the God who's revealed himself in the Bible, you've made up your own. And so sin has a way of deceiving, and that's why God repeatedly tells us in the Bible, don't be deceived. In fact, let me encourage you to read again 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul's going to use that phrase, don't be deceived, don't be deceived, repeatedly there. But by way of example, how about Ephesians 5, the same warning, don't be deceived about the nature of sin. This is Ephesians 5, 3 through 8. 
But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Here it is. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes on the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. And so why must a church deal with sin? Because sin is destructive. And so first of all, we've seen it deceives but it also divides. And real quickly, we know that's true. Sin separates a person from God. Even a believer, if you're a believer and you're tempted to go into sin and you've taken that step into sin, you know immediately as a Christian, this isn't going to go well. You immediately lose that sense of intimacy with God when you're into sin and you're not quickly repenting. You, you lose a sense of peace. You lose that sense of spiritual power that you've enjoyed when you walk with him. You feel estranged from God. He's not left you, but you've left him as a sense, even if you're physically in the right places. It'd be like a, a married couple. If they don't address their problems, they might begin to feel distant from each other, and they might at some point just feel like they're occupying the same residence together, but there's no intimacy. This happens to people spiritually. Sin separates you from God when you don't repent of it, but it also separates you from other believers. Have you noticed some people will just say, you know, I'm not even going to go to church anymore. And they might give lots of different reasons, but sometimes the real reason is there's sin in their lives and they don't want to let go of that and they can't face other people. It, it separates you from people who, who love you or a person who is not sorry for their sin. Maybe they'll come into the church body and just flaunt their sin. That also causes friction and distances people. But God offers us so much more than sin. That's why he tells us to turn away from it. That's why a church has to deal with it. It deceives, sin divides, but it does destroy Sometimes quite quickly, you know, a person could start experimenting with drugs and very quickly uh, find themselves in devastation in their lives. A person just in one weekend of going crazy can devastate their family. So sometimes it's quite obvious the destruction of sin, but sometimes it's less obvious. A person might just decide, I'm not going to be a worshiper. I'm just going to live for other things. I'm not going to do anything criminal. But you could lead your family into an apathetic understanding of God. Lead your family to understand that you don't really need God. You don't need him to be first in your life. You don't need a savior. And you could put your family on a path toward destruction. Sin always ends in destruction, whether immediately or down the road. It happens. In fact, I, I live with this awareness as a pastor that, that if I were to let myself get into sin, rather than trust in the Lord and, and rely on him, if I got into sin, I could do some things that would wreck me, yes, but not just me. I could do things that would wreck my family. That's true of all of us, but I could do some things that would devastate a whole church family. So I live with that awareness. That's what pastors are aware of. We want to walk this walk as well. But do you know that your sin also can impact me? That where that connected is about, you know, you know, your sin may not make the news like my sin possibly could, but nevertheless, we're connected here, and our sin can bring devastation. Here's, here's another example. What about just in the realm of hypocrisy? So if you are in the church family and you're living a double life and you're living a hypocritical life, don't think that only impacts you. It impacts the people around you. Uh, people will not want to come to a church that's rife with hypocrisy and understand. We sympathize with the, with the world with that. And so your life impacts others. So, so as we talk about sin for a moment here, maybe you're thinking, you know, I, I'm in sin. Maybe that's a couple of you, somebody. And you think, I'm in sin and I don't, I'm not experiencing any 
devastation in my life. It's going quite well right now. Do you realize that you do reap what you sow, but not always when you sow it? Farmers will tell you this. They'll plant seed months in advance of when the harvest comes. None of them expect they'll have a harvest the same day. And so it may be true that right now you're running hard from God, but here God mercifully is having you watch this to remind you, no, devastation is coming, but forgiveness is available. And that's why we preach this good news of Jesus. And so we've considered then why must a church address sin because of what a church is, but also because of what sin does, and sin does bring devastation. But now the question, how does a church address sin? And Paul gives us some clues here. We know now why we must address it, though we'd rather not have to. But now how do we do it? How do you handle problems like divisiveness in a church or false teaching like in Corinth or sexual immorality that's not being repented of? How do you do it? I mean, imagine if we had a situation like this. You had a man who, who had become an adulterer. He's devastating his family, and he's not sorry. He wants to continue in that life. Imagine this. What if he even wants to bring his new lady to church and worship with him and attend a life group together? Is there anything a church can do to protect itself from that, that damage to the fellowship, that damage to the integrity and the, and the mission of the church? Is there anything we can do? And thankfully, God has told us, here's what you do when there's sin in the church that the person's not repenting of. There's, a, first of all, a clear standard that we're giving. We're given the Bible as that clear standard. All of us, as we embrace Christ, we've taken up, this is truth, this is God's word, and we'll let this be authoritative over our lives. And we see that from the Bible that disobedience is not an option for a sincere believer in Jesus Christ. And so our standard, though, is not personal preference, what's my opinion versus your opinion. It's not legalism, extra rules that we might create. It's not that. It's certainly not looking to the culture. What do they say? We have a clear standard. Secondly, God gives us a due process. And notice back in our text here, Paul talks about calling witnesses. You can tell he's getting ready to have to thoroughly go through this issue of sin in the church. Our text here says this back in verse 1. This is the third time I'm coming to you. Every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So Paul here is quoting an Old Testament principle from Deuteronomy. It's actually the same principle Jesus picked up in Matthew 18 to tell us how do you deal with sin when it's not being confessed and repented of in a church. Here's what Jesus said in Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So notice this now, that this is not optional for a church. Here's Paul talking about it, but here's Jesus himself, the one who loves the church, the one who gave his body and blood for the church. He says, when there's sin in the church, go one-on-one. He he speaks this way, you want to win your brother. This is a loving thing to do. And And if your brother won't be one, if he won't repent, bring one or two with you. And if he won't repent, then you need to bring it to the church. And then you'll treat this one like an unbeliever. Paul taught the Corinthians this in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 5, maybe you know this, they had a a terrible situation that Paul said, you have to address it. This is 1 Corinthians 5, 1 and 2. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind that does not even exist among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. 
you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. Paul went on to tell him this, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother. If he's an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church, but those who are outside God judges? And then he said this, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Again, catch this. This is not optional for a church. Tolerance toward ongoing sin in a believer in a church is not looked at as something good. Paul called it out in 1 Corinthians 5. He says, that's arrogant to act like this is our church. We could do what we want. No, it's the, it's the church of the living God. And so you can't leave sin in it. Paul said, that's arrogance. What you should have done is you should have mourned when a grievous sin like this, a man who had his stepmom said, that should never happen. You have to remove this one from the church. So we have a, we have a clear standard. We have a due process that we've been given here. But notice this also, there's always a redemptive goal. The goal is always repentance and restoration. Perhaps you remember back in chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians months ago when we were there, Paul actually was reminding the Corinthians they had confronted somebody about another sin, and now Paul's telling him, all right, the guy has repented. You need to now forgive him. You need to restore him. This is 2 Corinthians 2, 6 and following. Sufficient for such a one is the punishment which was inflicted by the majority, so that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him, but one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. So yes, sometimes a church must confront sin, but the goal is always, all we want is repentance. All we want is the person to say, I've changed in my ways. I must come back into conformity to follow Jesus as Lord. And then the church must come with forgiveness and restoration. In fact, Paul tells us even the right spirit that we enter into this. In Galatians 6, 1, we read this, brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Did you hear that? We're to do all this when it's necessary thankfully rarely, but when it's necessary, we do it with a spirit of gentleness. We must address sin, but we must address it with absolute humility. It's not like any of us have been without temptation. It's not like any of us have, have not failed at time. We've all experienced that. It's not like any of us are superior to somebody else and that we're somehow beyond these struggles. It's not like any of us could not fall in the future if we fail to walk with Christ. And so we understand to varying degrees, we're all struggling Christians. We've all stumbled at times and we also need the ongoing grace of God. So when we have to enter in to help another brother or sister, oh, we enter in with humility and we enter in with gentleness. We enter in to help them out. But sadly, we know that not everybody that you try to help out of sin appreciates that. Sometimes a person in that situation can become defensive. They can become combative, even accusatory. And yet here's our response to that. Even when it doesn't go well, 
we still press on with love. We still respond with gentleness. We still come with persistence in calling for repentance. And if they don't repent of their sin, even after our best efforts of loving them back to Christ, even if they won't, Jesus tells us what to do. You just treat them like an unbeliever. That doesn't mean you treat them poorly. It means they can't be a church member, but you keep loving them. That's what we do with unbelievers. We want unbelievers to become believers. We keep praying for them, and we long for the day when we can welcome them back, when they're willing to repent and put their faith in Jesus Christ because they've been living like an unbeliever. Jesus said, then you treat them like an unbeliever. Love them from outside the church. You love them and pray for the day they'll come to Christ genuinely. So let me ask you this as we bring this to a conclusion. Where are you in your struggle with sin? And again, we all battle sin and temptation daily, but where, where are you? Maybe right now you, you're thinking of a particular temptation that you're fighting, a very strong battle that you're facing. Let me encourage you, keep fighting in the strength that God's given you. Don't, don't give in, even if you've given in in the past. And James 4 is a great promise for us. I love this. It says, submit therefore to God. That's a key move. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. What a great promise. Submit to God, but then fight. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. You can win if you are a follower of Christ. But how about this? You might be here and you're thinking, I I have already failed. I'm really losing in this battle. Can I remind you of the mercy of God? The whole reason Jesus came was to rescue us from our sin. He loves us. He understands our failures. And that's why Jesus died on a cross. And he was raised from the dead. And he's offering to forgive you your sin. And so that's the invitation today, this gospel, to remind you that Jesus came to forgive your sins. He was raised from the dead, conquering sin and death for you. And your move is always the same, confession, which means agree with God. Repentance, be willing to turn from that sin and then be restored by God. Let him restore you. If you're a believer already, let him restore you to a close, intimate walk with him. Walk in the power of God. If you've yet to believe in Jesus, I pray that this would be the moment where you see your sin and you're ready to let it go. You're tired of the pain. You're tired of the division of that sin in your life. You're you're tired of the deception. Oh, would you come and put your faith in Jesus Christ? And then this final word, you know the church is here to help you in these struggles. The church is not wanting to push people out. Really, we understand ourselves to be what many have called a hospital for sinners. That's our whole purpose. All of us have been battered by sin and self-inflicted wounds, and we've found healing in Jesus Christ, and, and that's our message, and that's, that's what we've experienced, healing here. And so if you're battling with sin and you feel like you need help, that's what we're here for. And so reach out. Reach out even this week. Contact us. Say, I, I want somebody to pray with me about this in my life. Doesn't that have to be a pastor? Maybe it's somebody in your life group. Maybe it's your life group leader, maybe one of the deacons of a church or a godly Christian friend. Reach out to another brother or sister in Christ to help you as you overcome in these struggles, as you find your way back to restoration of Christ. It's available through Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father, we do confess that we are weak and you're the strong one. We confess that we have failed many times and that's why, God, we're so grateful that you are our Savior. You have given cleansing from all of our sin, all of our unrighteousness. And Lord, now we want to walk that walk of obedience. And Lord, you know how difficult that is for us. You know the temptations that we face. And so God, we're, we're once again proclaiming our faith in you. Lord, we want to tap in and walk in the strength you supply by your spirit. And Lord, help us to love each other enough to call each other back to health. We pray for great things like that in the life of the church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.